Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. turn to Mark chapter 3. We're coming back to our series through Mark. I want to read verses 13 to 19. This is where Jesus chooses his apostles. So follow along as I read. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Cananean and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. So this is Mark's list of the twelve disciples who are named by Jesus as his apostles. Well, this is their formal calling, the formal calling of the twelve. We noted back in chapter 1, when we undertook this series, that he called uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John to follow him. You might recall that. So they began to follow Jesus and follow his ministry back then, sometime before. But now this is their formal calling to apostleship. John gives us an interesting, more interesting detail on what they were doing before this in the first chapter. They were spending time with Jesus. They were learning from him in private. So these are the chosen from, it would appear, a larger group of followers. He handpicked these men. This was Jesus' inner circle. And they're chosen to be his agents of his mission in the world, distinguished as his apostles. I have two points this morning. First of all, verses 13 to 15 Why did he choose them? And then, whom he chose. So it's very simple to think our way through what we just read. Why did he choose them? Now notice how it begins. And he went up on the mountain. Why did Jesus go up on a mountain? Well, there's about five or six times in the Gospels of Jesus going up into a mountain. A mountain mountains in the Bible are very significant, actually. You got Mount Sinai, you got Mount uh, Carmel, where 
Elijah met the false prophets of Baal. Mount Nebo, where Moses was died and was buried. Um, Mount Zion, of course, which is the city of Jerusalem and where the temple was. The Mount of Transfiguration. Mountains are very important in the Bible, especially in the life of Jesus. Why? Because they were places often where there was divine activity, divine revelation. Significant things happened on mountains in the Word of God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ goes up into a mountain. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but he probably spent time in prayer before calling them to be his apostles. So the Lord is in a mountain, and notice he called. Now, the word called is very important in the New Testament because it means he summoned them. This was a call that could not be resisted, by the way. They couldn't uh, refuse it. This was like the call to jury duty or calling to, to the, come before a judge. This, is, this was a very serious thing, the calling. He summoned them. In fact, the New American Standard Bible translates it like that. He summoned those, notice how they say it, whom he himself wanted. Now we read in our version, whom he desired. But it's the, the will of the Lord Jesus is actually uh, very prominent here. He's the one who determined who he was going to choose. Notice, they didn't choose him. He, he says this to them in the upper room, in his upper room discourse in John 15. You have not chosen me, I have chosen you and ordained that you should go forth and bring forth much fruit. John 15, 16. Remember, this is just the opposite of how rabbis gathered their disciples. Disciple means a learner, a student, somebody he's going to train and instruct, mentor. In first century Palestine, the rabbi did not choose who he was going to have as his students. It was the students who chose their rabbi. The same today, like students decide where they want to go to college. They choose their school of institution that they're going to study at. The Lord Jesus Christ flipped that around. He's the rabbi, and he chose who he was going to instruct and train. He gathered his own recruits. So it's important to note that whose will is being exerted here. They didn't uh, decide they were going to follow Jesus and do him a favor by becoming his students. No, he picked them. He determined who they are. You know, the same thing happens today in salvation. This is, the, this is how it happens. This is how a person comes to faith in Christ. They get a calling from God, and they're called to faith. It's an internal calling. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. As William was describing what happened to the girl here in Bellflower and the great change that came over her. She was called by the Spirit. So he chose whom he would. 
they, and notice, they came to him. No one turned him down. They came to him and he appointed 12, mark the number, very important, whom he also named apostles. Whom he named apostles. Now this is a different word than disciple. Now apostle just appears two times in Mark's gospel. Here and somewhere else they're called apostles. Most of the time it's like over 50 times they're called disciples. Now if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning, you're a disciple of Jesus. We all are. I've been a follower of Christ for many, many years, and I consider myself one who has tried to be a student of Jesus and learn from him, learn about him, uh, learn Jesus himself, not only about him, but learn him, who to know is life eternal. So I want to I continue to follow him and hopefully follow him faithfully until death. But not everybody is called to be an apostle. This is, this is a whole nother level. This means a commissioned representative. This is, this, this is a very official thing that is being said about them. They are designated as Jesus-specific messengers. To go into the world with his message, to take it into the world, to extend his mission. They are his agents. This is what being an apostle is. Now, in a a way, I consider those who go uh, become missionaries and go wherever to a foreign land or perhaps even in the United States to plant a church if they're sent out. There's a sense in which we could say that they're kind of, they're in the spirit of an apostle because they're Christ's commissioned representative. They're taking his message. So a missionary, in a sense, is sort of like an apostle. But this, these men that are called apostles, they are very special. And I'll try to bring that out as we go through this. Now notice what it says. He called them and named them Apostles, notice the text, so that, this is now, this is an important little phrase here, this is a purpose clause that is being stated now. Why did Jesus call them? So that, in order that, they might be with him. Notice that, the first thing. He, he called them and made them his representatives that they might be with him. That's where it starts. Becoming a messenger of Jesus Christ really begins in a very close relationship with him. He wanted these men with him. That privilege was not given to the general crowd of people that were following Jesus around. This is the inner circle circle that spent time with him every day. They were with him all the time. They might be with him. This is where it begins. This is first in importance. We might say that discipleship itself uh, begins here. It begins in a relationship with Christ. 
You remember when the apostles were arrested in Acts 4? And they were being questioned by the leaders in Jerusalem who tried to put a stop to their ministry. They did not want them preaching. They tried to silence them. But listen to verse 13 of Acts 4. When they, that is the Jewish leadership, saw the boldness of Peter and John, that they were uneducated and common men. I like this, that Luke is giving us this understanding of of them. They, the leadership, were astonished, and they recognized, catch it, that they had been with Jesus. I love that text. It was evident to the Jewish leadership when they questioned these men, there was something special about them. They reflected the one who had mentored them, how they answered, the spirit in which they answered. It reflected their having spent time with Jesus. See, this is where it all begins. That's where it begins with us, too. When you become a Christian, the first thing you need to think about is, I want to spend time with the Lord. And you do that through the Word of God. We don't have Jesus physically present with us anymore. He's not here in the flesh. He's in glory. He's ruling and reigning over the world. He's coming back in judgment. And it could be sooner than we think. We don't know when he's coming. He said, no man knows that hour. Be ready. Be alert. Be aware of what's happening in the world so that we can be ready when he comes. But let me say this, that Jesus has purposed for all of his people to eventually be with him. The disciples got a preview of that in their lifetime by spending three plus years with Jesus. But we have all eternity to spend with him. Listen to his words, John 14. In my Father's house are many mansions. No, let, let, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. These are Jesus' words. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. This is he telling these, this to his disciples the night before he was crucified. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Think of that. This is is how he comforts his disciples before he's going to die, that he's going to come for them in the future and take them to be with him where he is. So there was a temporary separation. There has now been a separation of 2,000 years between Christ's physical presence and his people. But the time is coming when we will be with him and will be with him forever. So that's the first thing, the first reason why he chose them, that they might be with him. Because their training begins right there. But then he adds... Mark, 
as he's explaining this, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. To preach is to proclaim. Preaching is public proclamation of the message of the Word of God. This was a major part of their ministry, was to preach and proclaim, which they did. And he adds, and to have authority to cast out demons. There we meet that again. It's prominent in the first century. There were people that were under the power and influence of evil spirits. They are today as well. When you read what people are doing, the crimes that people are committing, it's very hard to explain this apart from this is straight from the prince of darkness himself, where somebody would get an idea to do something like this. So we're living in a time when there's still a lot of demon possession. That's a part of the Christian ministry. There's been many pastors that have encountered demon-possessed people that come to their churches. It's happened. Jesus sent them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons, to expel the evil powers, deprive them of their influence and control over those they possess. So that was a part of their ministry. We find that in Luke chapter 10. If you want to read about that further, it's in that chapter in particular. Now, let's come to who Jesus chose, verses 16 to 19. So in the, in the four Gospels, we have four lists of the men that Jesus chose. They're not exactly the same. Some of the names are different. And that is to be explained by the fact that men often had more than one name. We'll see that as we go through this. Now, some of the things are the same. But let's, let's talk about the fact that 12 is mentioned here. Verse 16. Again, he appointed the 12... Now, that's a, that's a technical phrase that's going to be used over and over again in Mark's gospel. He uses it ten times. He talks about the twelve. Matthew and Luke mention the twelve six times. John mentions the twelve four times. And the twelve is mentioned once in the book of Acts, and then the apostle Paul mentions the twelve one time himself and his letters in 1 Corinthians 15. So that became a title of designation of the original 12 apostles, the 12. Why do you think it talks like that? Well, you should immediately think of a connection. That number 12 connects us to the Old Testament people of God, the nation of Israel, the nation that God chose consisted, came from the twelve sons of Jacob. They're called the twelve tribes of Israel. But the people of God in the Old Testament was more of a a national thing. It, It was a nation that was looked upon as God's people. Though not everybody in the nation was what we would say today were saved people. There were many wicked people, actually, among them. Some of the kings were horrible that Israel had. Wicked, wicked men. And many who followed them. But 
the nation consisted of 12 tribes. And so immediately there's a linkage here by the fact that Jesus chose 12 men. But these 12 men did not come from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. We we don't make that jump. And the New Testament doesn't tell us to make that jump. We're not told what tribe they were from. It's not important anymore. But it does say 12 because it's connecting us to the Old Testament nation and people of God. But we're going to see that here in kind of germ form, right at the beginning, that something is changing. Something is changing in who these people of God now in this age of the new covenant are. And the place that these 12 men in particular have in the story, the place that they the role that they play. And it's very important. The Apostle Paul tells us in one of his letters that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. This is Ephesians 2.20. I thought Jesus Christ was the foundation. Yes, he's the foundation. He's the the massive rock with rebar and granite and everything underneath it. But on top of the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a foundation that was laid by the apostles. And they play a very important role in the founding of the Christian church. Really, they are the nucleus of the new age, the new covenant age of God's people. Now, I've referred to a text in Revelation in the past, and probably some of you will remember it, but I want to bring it up at this point because it puts this together. When you come to the end of the Bible, in Revelation 21, you have the eternal state of what it's, after everything is over with, all history has come to a conclusion, Jesus has come, judgment has taken place, and now it's eternity. This is Revelation 21. And explains that the city of God that the church is going to live in is there, but the church also is under the same figure as a city. So it has a double reference. The the, the bride of Christ is under the figure or metaphor of this city, but it's a city that they're going to live in as well. And it describes this city in many ways. That's where you get the idea that there is streets of gold, there's a gate, the gates of pearl, and all of that. It's in that place. But what's significant is the fact that it says that there are 12 gates into the city. And on each of these gates is written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. So on each gate is one of the names. Judah, Reuben, Manasseh, Ephraim, and so on and so forth. Twelve of them. That's a gate. Now it's interesting that in order to enter, to become a one of God's people in the Old Testament, 
you pretty much had to go through a certain gate, you know, in a sense. You had to become Jewish. You had to embrace the Jewish religion. If you were outside and wanted to be a part, you could be a part because they, there were some Gentiles that joined them. You had to go through, in a sense, Judaism, adopting the law of God, and so on. So the idea that they are gates, to me, is a, is a good way of thinking how people entered into the people of God in the Old Testament. It was like passing through a gate. But in addition to 12 gates, this city also has 12 foundations. And guess what the names are that are written on the 12 foundations? The apostles. Now that ties that in with what Paul said, that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So they play an important role as the founders of the church, but the fact that in the eternal state, in the eternal city of God, we have both the Old Testament people of God represented by the 12 tribes, the 12 gates, and also the 12 foundations being the 12 apostles, this is connecting the Old Testament people of God with the New Testament people of God, that they form one body. They form one group, the saved people of God of all ages. This is who is there. This is their city. This is where they will dwell for all eternity. Now let's get to the names. So he appointed 12. Now, the first person always mentioned in the lists, the four lists, is always this man, who's the first one mentioned here, Simon. This is Peter's original name. Jesus gave Simon the nickname Petros when he met him. First thing Jesus says to him, he names him, I'm going to call you Petros. A stone or a rock is what it means. The other word we read, Cephas, that's the Aramaic for the same idea. Cephas or Petros, one is Greek, one is Aramaic. But it's the same meaning. He's a rock or a stone. Now, Peter was anything but a rock or a stone at, this, at that point. Because he shows a lot of instability, he blurts things out, he puts his, as people often say about Peter, you know, he, he speaks sometimes without discretion, without thinking. But he's going to become a rock. He's going to become a stone, but it doesn't happen until after the resurrection. Not until after the resurrection. Then he lives up to his nickname. So he's always mentioned first because Peter is uh, hes the leader of the group. He's the one who speaks for the group. He becomes the first leader in the church in Jerusalem. It's Peter. 
who preaches on the day of Pentecost. He opens the door, the gospel, to a Jewish audience, and then he's called to go to Caesarea, to the house of Cornelius, where he opens the door to the Gentile world in Acts chapter 10. So Peter is very prominent in the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, and then after that it's the Apostle Paul. So Peter is first. He is Simon, whom he gave the name Peter. Now next is the two brothers, the two sons of Zebedee. You might remember from chapter 1, they also were fishermen along with Peter and Andrew. The sons of Zebedee, James and John. Boy, do we like James and John. There's a lot about, especially John, about these men. Um, look at the nickname he gave, gave them, both brothers. He named them Boanerges, sons of thunder. Why do you think he gave them that name? For that reason. They probably were loud. They had loud voices. And perhaps they were kind of hot-tempered, maybe. Because let me read you something that they said that's recorded by Luke. In Luke chapter 9, they encountered some opposition in their ministry. And this is them speaking to Jesus. This is James and John now. This is John who became the apostle of love, who tells us God is love, who gave us the gospel that is full of the love of Christ. Boy, was he changed. Because here, here's John and James. Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven and consume them? This is Luke chapter 9, verse 54. So there, there was something pretty edgy about their character at the beginning. That Jesus gave them this nickname, Sons of Thunder. Could have been their style of preaching. It could have been that they were, like I said, hot-tempered, loud. John refers to himself in his gospel. By the way, the same John called here, wrote the gospel of John. Usually the first book that a missionary translates for a people in a foreign country that need the word of God. They want to give them the gospel of John. Why? Because it's all about bringing people to believe in Christ as the son of God. And that's an important message. John refers to himself in his gospel as the disciple that Jesus loved. He doesn't call himself by name. The disciple that Jesus loved. So Jesus loved these men, even though they were sons of thunder at the beginning. He brought them under control and trained them and tempered them with his amazing character. Now James, by the way, is the first apostle to have been martyred. He dies in Acts chapter 12. First one to die a martyr's death was James. And Peter's head was next. 
when Peter is in prison and he, he's going to be killed the next day by Herod Agrippa. And Peter, as you know, was miraculously delivered from prison and spared. Now we have Andrew mentioned, verse 18, Andrew is the brother of Peter. So, so far we have two sets of brothers that are called to be disciples. Peter and Andrew, James and John. You know, it's, these men were not that old. Some have said they were teenagers, and I believe it. I don't think they were young teenagers, but I believe they were teenagers. That Jesus picked younger men. The Lord himself is about 30, and, you know, I could see these men being 15, 16 years old. Maybe Peter was 17, 18, a little older, a little more mature, so he kind of rose up the ranks a little, became more significant because of his age and his outspokenness. So this is... Andrew, not much, we don't know much about Andrew. The one thing we learn about him is that he introduced his brother Peter to Jesus in John chapter 1. It's pretty, pretty neat how we read about him. He went and found, it text says, Andrew went and found his brother Peter and said, You've got to come and hear, we, we have found him who is the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And in that moment then, at that encounter, is when Jesus changed Peter's name. You're no longer Simon, you're Petros. Cephas. Next we have Philip. Now Philip is mentioned four times in the Gospel of John. Four times, he's also from the same city that Peter and Andrew were from, Bethsaida. It was a fishing village, so we assume that probably uh, Philip was a fisherman as well, but not quite sure. So Philip, uh, the one, the one thing that really stands out about him is in the upper room when they, when Jesus is giving his last discourse to them before his death. And he had just said those words that I, I gave to you about let not your heart be troubled and so on. Soon after that, Philip says, Lord, show us the Father. What a request. He's, he's asking Jesus to show him God. Show us the Father. We want to see the Father. Because Jesus has been talking about the Father, the Father's dwelling places. And you remember what Jesus said to him? <laughs> Philip, have I been so long time with you that you have not known the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. That was Jesus' answer. Think about that. He that has seen me has seen the Father. Next, we have Bartholomew. 
It is believed that Bartholomew, by process of elimination, and the fact that he comes after Philip, he's mentioned with Philip, Philip and then Bartholomew, that Bartholomew's other name is Nathaniel, who is mentioned in John 1 again. And it was Philip who told Nathaniel that we have found him, so Philip is kind of doing what Andrew did with his brother Peter, taking his brother to meet Jesus, telling him we found the Messiah. Philip does the same thing. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote. This is John 1.45. This is Nathaniel that's being told this. And he has a brief encounter with Jesus, Nathaniel does. Just a very brief conversation. And after that conversation, he says, You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. This was Nathaniel's impression after one little conversation with Jesus of Nazareth. And we don't know much about Nathaniel. There is one little detail that I read in preparing this that I had not come across before, that there is a tradition that comes out of China, actually, and it comes through a Jesuit priest who was there as a missionary, that the Chinese claim that Nathaniel or Bartholomew came to China to minister, and he got there in a, in a miraculous way, but that he was one who had brought the gospel to China. You don't know really anything about him. Next is Matthew. Now, we know who Matthew is. The very first book in your New Testament is Matthew. It's written by him. Who is Matthew? His other name is Levi, and we encountered him in the second chapter. Levi, the son of Alphaeus, who was sitting at the tax booth collecting taxes of those that were on the route that went from the east to the west and down into Egypt. It was a trade route, and he was collecting poll taxes when Jesus called him. And Matthew, or Levi, then invited Jesus, invited all of his sinful friends, remember, and they had dinner together. He wanted to introduce all of his friends to Jesus. This is Matthew. He wrote, wrote a gospel, so you can see his gospel would, would have many things as an eyewitness. One of the eyewitness accounts as well as John's Gospel. Again, Matthew didn't, is not the first to write a book. Don't get confused by what I'm saying. The first Gospel written, I believe, is Mark. Matthew and Luke came later, and John. John was the last to write. John wrote his books very late in life. After Matthew, oh, look who comes next. Thomas. 
the twin. Thomas Didymus, the twin. He was given the name the twin. He must have had a twin brother. What's Thomas known for? He's mentioned uh, five times in John's Gospel. He's the one who refused to believe that Christ was raised from the dead. Because he was not there that Sunday night when Jesus came into the room with the doors being closed and the disciples were there hiding out for fear of the Jews. And Jesus came and spoke to them, but Thomas was not with them. So when they finally saw Thomas, they told him, hey, we've seen the Lord. He's raised from the dead. And Thomas refused to believe. So I will not believe unless I can put my finger in the nail prints in his hands and so on. So the next Sunday night, Thomas was with him when Jesus came. And you remember his confession at the end of that encounter with the risen Christ was my Lord and my God. John 20, 28. Jesus didn't say, oh, Thomas, you got it wrong. I'm not God. Don't call me God. That's blasphemy. No. The Lord Jesus Christ totally received it. He said, Thomas, because you have seen and believed, blessed are those who have not seen, that's us, who have not seen yet believe. Jesus pronounces a blessing on us who have not seen him but still believe just as strongly as Thomas did. Next, we have James, the son of Alphaeus. Remember I said that Levi is also called the son of Alphaeus in chapter 2, who is Matthew? So some have drawn the conclusion that maybe Levi or Matthew, slash Matthew or Levi, the son of Alphaeus, maybe his brother is this man, because he's also the son of Alphaeus, James. And that would mean there are three pairs of brothers that make up half of the disciples. I think that's a fascinating thing to consider. We don't know anything about him. James, the son of Alphaeus. The next one is Thaddeus again. Now, he has another name as well, because in Luke's Gospel and in Acts, written by the same man, Luke 1, 16, and Acts 1, 13. No, that's, uh, excuse me, Luke 6, 16, not 1, 16. Luke 6, 16. This man is believed to be the same person as Judas, the son of James. So this is where I'm telling you in the list of the apostles, they don't all agree in the, what the men are called. So through research, study, process of elimination, these connections are made like this, that this must be, Thaddeus must be Judas, the son of James, that is mentioned in Luke and Acts. Don't know anything about him. Nothing. Just the name, Thaddeus. And then next we have an interesting character. We're almost done. Simon the Cananean. Cananean is from the Aramaic and it means 
zealous, jealous, enthusiast. That's the idea of the word. And so he's called, uh, in another list, Simon the Zealot. Now that could mean that he was a member of a particular movement, actually, the Zealot Party, which was a very extreme nationalistic group that wanted to force the Romans out of Israel. He, he could have been a member of that group, that movement. We don't know, or it could simply mean that he was a man of zeal. He was zealous for the honor of God. We're not quite sure how to understand that, but that's about all we know about Simon, the zealot or the Cananean. And finally, the man who is always at the end of the list, always, is Judas Iscariot. Iscariot uh, could be, in Hebrew, it's the idea of man of Kariot, which was a town. Man of Kariot tells you where he's from. That was a town down in the territory of Judah, but it was east of the Dead Sea, close to the border of Edom. The only apostle to come from that territory. This is Judas, forever stigmatized as the man who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. So there's the group. Now, let's say a few things, and I'll wrap it up. So, as I pointed out, several of the men we don't know anything about. And yet, just consider that the spread of the Christian faith rested on their shoulders, and the church, in a sense, was built on the foundation of these 12 men, one of which is eliminated, Judas, he will, he's removed by his own hand from the group. And another takes his place, still maintaining 12. Acts chapter 1 tells us about his replacement, how the church went about that, replacing Judas with another member. The church rested on the shoulders of these men who had the task as Christ's agents to bear his message carried into the world and really establish the Christian faith, establish the church so it got a foothold in the world. I think that's an amazing thing to think about, that several of these men we don't know anything about, but you look at the Christian world today, two billion people worship Jesus Christ, and it all goes back to these 12 men. He gave these men the task of carrying his message into the world and establishing Christ's church. There where they were, and Jesus said, you're going to take it to Jerusalem first, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the earth. So it went like this. Now, another thing is that none of these men came from Israel's religious establishment. Jesus did not choose a Pharisee. He didn't choose a scribe, a chief priest, a Sadducee. 
to be any of his apostles. None of these men were chosen. He chose, in the words of Acts 4 that we read, men that were uneducated, common men, ordinary men. John MacArthur has a book about the disciples, and what's the title? Twelve Ordinary Men. haven't read that book, but I can imagine how he brings that out. To bring, that's, a, that's a great point. Twelve Ordinary Men. Not spectacular men. This agrees exactly with what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 about who God chooses. God chooses the foolish, the weak things of this world to confound the mighty and the wise. He chooses the lowly and the despised. Well, the disciples certainly filled that that profile perfectly. Now, another thing is, is that they were flawed men. They were flawed. Judas betrayed him. Peter. Peter denied him three times. James and John, they sought after glory and honor. It was James and John who wanted to sit next to Jesus on his left hand and his right hand in his kingdom. They were seeking some power and glory there. These are flawed men. Thomas doubted him. They all slept in the garden when Jesus needed them to stay awake with him and pray for him as he was going through his temptation and trial in Gethsemane. And then they all forsook him and fled and were in hiding. They went into hiding. It was women who went to the tomb on Sunday morning to anoint his body, not the disciples, not his recruit, recruitments. That's something to think about. Those that he trained, recruited for the task of evangelism, they weren't the ones who went to the tomb. It was the, his, the women followers of Jesus, Mary Magdalene. So you know what that tells me? That tells me that the, test, the testimony uh, in the Gospels is really historically accurate. That because it reveals the scandal, the scandalous behavior of Jesus' own apostles. Let me just ask a question. Is Jesus calling you to follow him and become his disciple? There's no greater calling than to become a student of Jesus, to learn from him, and so on. I would say this, the followers of Jesus Christ are on life's greatest adventure. It's for the greatest cause and has the greatest ending. Do you catch that? This is life's greatest adventure for the greatest cause and has the greatest ending. Because you have all eternity to look forward to, to be with Christ. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.